The 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution abolished slavery and involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for a crime. Ever wondered how we ended up with the largest prison population of any country? Have you noticed that those whose jobs it is to protect and serve seem to be demanding more and more blind obedience? You didn't think it just happened by chance, did you? It's time to call attention to the fact our government is the most prolific slave owner on the planet. This is Surviving the System. Thank you for joining me today on Surviving the System. This is Dance and Dave. And today I am going to keep the introduction as short as possible because we have a guest coming on today to talk about his new book and some of his experiences. And I'm not sure if he was told this or not, but I have been trying to get him or someone from his organization on my show since I first started. So this is going to be a treat for me. Hopefully, it provides value for you as well. So we'll get right into the housekeeping items. Uh, Don't forget to check out the website, survivingthesystem.org. I do have my contact me part on there. I would love to hear from you folks. I'd love to hear your stories, feedback on anything you've heard, as well as the archive of the shows on there. If you don't listen to podcasts, check me out on social media, facebook.com slash surviving the system and on Twitter at STS, the podcast. And don't forget to check out as well. I know I don't mention this very often, but I'm going to start more now that my producer and owner of The Fringe has been spending so much time. Don't forget to check out the website, fringe.fm. You can find information about me, my show page on there, as well as everybody else available on the station, all the great shows available. Check out the shop on there. Take a look and see if there is anything that might strike up your fancy. Go there when you can. You can drop me a line through there, too, if you're not able to catch me on the website or on social media. And as always, right before we get started, I do want to quickly start with that moment of gratitude just to make sure that we keep keep that that vibration high, keep the frequency high as we can talk about some more difficult topics on this show. Those that can tend to strike a chord of of anger or frustration or, or resentment. And so we want to make sure that we can handle these topics in a productive and constructive manner. So with that being said, I just want to say that I am I am so grateful to be here with you, allowing me to live out my purpose to help to remind you of who you really are and what you're truly capable of. Our guest today is the esteemed Mr. Bill Keller. Now, Bill Keller is the founding editor-in-chief of The Marshall Project. That is a nonprofit news organization that covers criminal justice in the United States. If you've been listening to me for a while, you know that I have talked about this website on my show. I use it as a resource. I get their emails daily. I check out all of the stories that come through there. I've actually been able to contact some of the people who have written articles that have been on that website to come on and speak in the past. But as I mentioned at the at the beginning of the show, I've never had someone from the Marshall Project on. So I am very excited about this. Uh, He was also the executive editor of The New York Times and a winner of the Pulitzer Prize in 1985 for his reporting on the USSR. We will get into all of that, as well as his new book, What's Prison For?, 
punishment and rehabilitation in the age of mass incarceration. Bill, thank you very much for joining me today on Surviving the System. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on. I am, I am very excited to have you here. Um, if you can't tell, I, I, follow, I follow the work of the Marshall Project very, very frequently. I'm involved in criminal justice reform here myself in Omaha, Nebraska. So I try to stay as connected as I can, and it's always good to have someone on that I can that I can learn from. So just just to be clear, I retired as editor of the Marshall Project a couple of years ago. I'm mm. still on the board, and I, they're still my friends, and I occasionally edit for them. But just to be, I don't want to take credit for <laughs> more than I've actually done. Understand completely. Understand completely. Well, let's start a little bit with your your past. You have a pretty distinguished past in in journalism. So, how did you? What led you to get started in journalism? When did you decide that that was that was your calling, your chosen field? Probably in high school. Uh, not that we had much of a school paper, but I developed the sensitivities of somebody who's more comfortable being on the sidelines than in the parade. Uh, I like being the observer. Uh, I like calling people out on their claims. Uh, I'm proud to say that our high school paper got in trouble occasionally. <laughs> uh, then I went off to college and, and I, I went to a little liberal arts college called Pomona in Southern California. And I always say that my major was the school paper, which is kind of true. Uh, sure. And uh, those were, those were in the days when the newspapers actually had money. So I got a summer internship at the Oregonian. That was my first real paying job in journalism. I did the summer. When I finished the summer, they asked me to come back after I graduated. So that's how I started out. That's fantastic. And then from there, obviously, there was a a path that led you to the New York times. Did you go from the Oregonian over to New York or, or what was your, what was your journey like? Uh, it was a little circuitous. Um, I worked for the Oregonian for eight or nine years. The last half of it was in their Washington DC bureau. Uh, and then I quit and took a gap year. I'd saved up enough money so that my girlfriend and I could travel for we thought for six months we ended up traveling for a year oh wow if you're willing to eat street food and sleep in a sleeping bag you can stretch your money a little farther that's true then i came back worked for a weekly magazine called congressional quarterly why it's called congressional quarterly is another story weekly. <laughs> um then i worked in the washington bureau of the dallas times herald and from there i went to the oregonian gotcha so, and I am curious then, so you won the, the Pulitzer Prize in 1989 for reporting on the USSR. What, what was the story? Like, what was the topic that you were covering that, that drew so much attention? Uh, the story that when I was there was a guy named Mikhail Gorbachev, and who was promising to change the country radically. People weren't quite sure, people in America weren't quite sure whether to believe him or not. So when I arrived, he was still a little bit of a mystery. And I did five years in the Moscow Bureau. I started with Gorbachev letting a lot of dissidents out of jail and exile, which helped demonstrate his bona fides. Uh, and it ended 
uh, about a month after my my time there ended about a month after the military establishment and the KGB tried to overthrow Gorbachev. Oh, wow. So it was, it was one of those, I mean, I always tell people I'm a believer in luck and, uh, <laughs> I mean, you can't pick assignments like that and know that everything you write is going to go on the front page because, you know, this is like the Soviet union for God's sake. Yeah. Except when I left, it wasn't the Soviet union anymore. It was Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> Now, did you, and if I, if I missed it, my apologies, but did you get the, the chance to actually interview Mr. Gorbachev or was this all from the outside looking in? He didn't give a lot of interviews. He, yep. he, he tended to come out and lecture. So, so you could ask him a question, but, but there'd be a gaggle of reporters around him. And he did the same thing with, to his own citizens. He'd gather a bunch of them around instead of, you know, asking them questions, he would hold forth on what they had to do to straighten out their lives. Hmm. He was a little full of himself. Sure. Sure. So then, and I'm curious then, so from working in the New York times over to the Marshall project, how much time was in between there? What, what was that journey? Like, what was it that opened your eyes and you said, Hey, this is something I want to get more involved in. Uh, I'd been at the Times for about 30 years. Uh, I'd had, in addition to covering Russia, I was a correspondent in South Africa when Nelson Mandela took over. So we refer back to my comments about luck. Yeah. That was a lucky draw too. And I was foreign editor for a few years. Then there was a, I was managing editor. There was a competition to be executive editor. I lost. So I went into a very happy exile as a magazine writer and columnist for the op-ed page. Then the guy who got the executive editor's job imploded and got himself fired. Mm. Uh, And so I became executive editor. Did that for eight years. Uh, Then retired from the, that was about as much time as anybody should have to spend at a management job. Um, and then I went back to the writing gig for a few months and that's where I was when I was found by a guy named Neil Barsky. Neil Barsky is the founder of the Marshall Project. Neil Barsky started out as a Wall Street Journal reporter and he used to cover Donald Trump. Um, he covered real estate, so he ended up covering a lot of Trump. And he's very proud to have on his wall a page of a book that Trump wrote which he said Neil Barsky was the biggest asshole he ever, whoever covered him. <laughs> I, I don't think he said asshole. I think he said he was the most obnoxious. But, but Neil's, Neil carries that as a badge of pride. Uh, Neil also likes to say that working at the Wall Street Journal teaches you you don't have to be all that smart to get, to get rich. Uh, so he went and got rich. Uh, and then he became a philanthropist. Uh, giving away money and giving back to society. His, his parents were, were active in civil rights movement, so he was naturally inclined to sort of criminal justice and social justice issues. Mm. So he came up with this harebrained idea that in 2014, when newspapers were dying and newsrooms were eviscerated by budget cuts, he was going to start a newsroom from scratch. And he put up a bunch of his own money, recruited some friends to contribute. 
um, hired somebody to do to be a regular fundraiser, and he called me up. I'd never met him. He he called me up, sort of dropped the name of a mutual friend, and invited me to breakfast. Coincidentally, in the restaurant of the Trump Tower on the south end of Central Park. So Donald Trump was part of our marriage, I guess. <laughs> anyway, so he he said he wanted to start this news organization that would be a real news organization, not just a lobbying group or an advocacy, I mean, love advocacy groups, but we didn't want to be one. Um, and he, so he pitched me this idea and I was in the midst of writing newspaper columns for the Times. I'd never covered criminal justice as a beat, except like most newspapers, when you start out, you spend some time covering the police beat usually the night police beat because it's the least desirable yep. assignment. Um, so just to get a sense of what he was up to, I wrote a couple of columns on criminal justice um, and I got really engaged and really interested in the subject for this will be no surprise to you whatsoever, but I was appalled at how, how badly I understood that's how the system works or doesn't work. Uh, how little I knew about it and decided I, I was on board. And so I went, went to work in 2014 for the Marshall Project, started hiring people, uh, kept hiring people. Neil and his designated fundraisers did terrific jo a terrific job. And the Marshall Project now has, I think, about 40 people working for it. Uh, and as you know, because you're a regular reader, they're pretty damn good. Very. Yeah. And they don't pull any punches either. It, it's, it's definitely, I, the best phrase that I can come up with is it's, it's in your face. If it's a difficult topic or, or a tough subject, they don't, they don't soften the blow. And I like that. I'm glad you noticed that. We pride ourselves on that. Good. And it, it brings me up just, not necessarily off topic, but I'm, I'm always curious when I speak with people that are involved um, with the media and you having such a, a, a long career, how do you see journalism different today than it was 30, 40 years ago? And, and I ask that because there seems to just be a marriage between politics and journalism at this time in our history where you've got one side of the media is all about republicans and why their agenda is correct and why democrats are evil and on the other hand you've got the exact opposite why the democrats are right and why republicans are evil it doesn't really seem like it's very unbiased any longer where it's just this is the story kind of make up your own opinion from here after we give you the facts well, if you succeed in being in your face, you're, a lot of people are going to take you for biased if they don't like what you write. So I think I'll speak for so-called mainstream media, the Times, the Washington Post, the, you know, the, the major networks, some of the magazines, the, the supposedly responsible journalists. <laughs> uh, I think any of them would, would tell you that we aim to be impartial not to be prescriptive about what 
what should happen, but to be revealing of what is happened uh, and to be analytical about it. But I have to say that two factors have made it more polarized, made the media more polarized. And I include the New York Times in this too. One of them is social media, um, mm. which, which changes. I mean, one of the things that protects you against being too opinionated is you have the time to write a story. You have the time to report it out, to get al alternate views and make, try to make sense of it. The internet means you don't have nearly as much time because that story, somebody's going to be posting that story in five seconds. So you, so you sort of go with your gut. And if your gut happens to be liberal, which it probably is in the majority of mainstream news media outlets, um, you know, then it's going to show in the, in the, in the copy. Um, so social media is one thing that has changed the way the press operates. The other is kind of obviously Donald Trump, who was, he didn't invent populist, populism or this sort of nationalist streak, but he sure drove it home, drove a stake into the, into the property. Yeah. Um, and because he declared war on the press and, you know, and we all said, well, we're not going to be baited into being, being at war with the president of the United States. We've got to cover him seriously and, you know, straight down the middle. But you, there's, you, you can't cover Donald Trump down the middle or not down the middle that anybody would recognize as the middle. Um, he's just too out there. Yeah. He's and he knows how to I mean, he knows how to get the reaction that he's looking for. Yes, he does. And I would I would say, you know, if, if any White House correspondent tells you that he did, that didn't feel manipulated by Trump, he's lying. <laughs> I he was he, a, a master manipulator, even even at the when. It reached the point where he was being called a liar using the L word on the front page of newspapers. You know, even then, um, he was loving it. Oh, sure, because everybody was talking about him. Everybody was talking about him. Yeah. What's What's the old adage? Uh, There's no such thing as bad press. Yeah, bad press. Right. So we've got just about three minutes before our break at the bottom of the hour. Um, so I don't want to get in anything too in depth yet. We will we'll get into your book and, and a little bit more of the uh, the in your face type stories at that point. What I'm curious, though, what what led you to decide to write this book? Um. After I'd spent about five years immersed in the subject with my fellow editors and reporters, um, I, feel, I felt that was a, a good cycle, a good time to retire and do some other stuff, including some teaching. Um, and I thought I had some stuff that I'd learned that would be worth sharing. Uh, and along came Columbia Global Reports, which is a, a, an imprint associated with Columbia University. And they do these small books. I thought, I can write a small book. Um, they're, the guy who founded the place calls them nonfiction novellas. Uh, you know, they come out in paperback. They do about six of them a year. They're really good. 
I think I'm, I'm just speaking about my own. <laughs> um, uh, and so uh, I, I, I've known the editor of that publication for quite a while. Uh, I told him I was interested in pitching something to him. And he said, pitch away. And I pitched the idea of doing prisons. The, the criminal justice system, as you know, has lots of component parts. Mm. Uh, and, you know, policing gets a lot of attention. Courts operate pretty much in the open. But prisons are a little bit of a mystery. I mean, partly because people don't want to see what goes on in prisons, partly because the people who built the walls want to keep you out. So I thought I would try to do a, a primer on what I understood about the prison system. And it's, we've got just about a minute here. And then we'll get into we'll get into the book and and as I mentioned, get into a lot more detail about that. I think that was that was my eye-opening experience is having been through the system. That's how I learned all about it, unfortunately. And I think that that's in many cases, you don't know what's happening or what's going on in there unless you either go through it or you're a friend or family member that has someone close to you go through it and you're on that journey with them mm -hmm. so we'll talk a little bit more about that coming up here again we are speaking with bill keller author of what's prison for punishment and rehabilitation in the age of mass incarceration when we get back from the break we'll talk a little bit more about the book we'll get into some of the topics that it covers and we'll learn a little bit more about mr keller as well stay tuned Welcome back to Surviving the System. This is Dance and Dave, and we are speaking with Mr. Bill Keller, author of What's Prison For? And I'm going to go ahead and we're going to open up the phone lines and, and the chat just in case if anyone has any particular questions that they would like to ask of myself or Mr. Keller. The number is 1-800-588-0335. 800-588-0335 or just drop them in the chat on discord i will make sure to grab that for you so mr keller again thank you so much for your time and i really want to get into i want to get into the book now now i full disclosure i'm not done with it yet but that's because i let my mother borrow it and my mother read it and just got it back to me last weekend, but she she loved it. She said it was great. The research was very thorough. So give your mother my best. I will absolutely do that. I'll tell her you said thank you. So I know you, you got into a little bit about what led you to write the book and and how you pitched the topic. But what what I appreciate about it so far is you're coming at it from both I guess both sides of the aisle, so to speak. This isn't just all about how poorly inmates are being treated and all of the human rights violations and all of the atrocities, et cetera, that are going on. You're actually talking about the, the guards, the COs, and the people that work on the other side of the fence mm -hmm. and their view of it as well and how they're involved with that and they're invested. So... Where did, where did you get some of these stories from? Were these people that you met or interviewed or was it through the Marshall Project or how did you come up with these, these topics? Some of it was through the Marshall Project um, and I tried wherever I was 
relying on the research of one of the Marshall reporters to credit them in the, in the text and in the footnotes. Um, but I, I did a fair amount of reporting while I was running the Marshall Project, either collaborating with other reporters or just doing something that caught my fancy. And then after I left, I spent a year and a half doing what journalists do, which is call up smart people and ask them stupid questions. Um, I interviewed a lot of people, starting with some of the sociologists and criminologists who study what works in treating people who are incarcerated, but also a lot of people who were incarcerated or formerly incarcerated, uh, and obviously the advocacy communities, including the advocacy advocates of the guards. I'm glad you mentioned that because I mean, guards are often rightly portrayed as an obstruction to change um, because they're there to protect vested interests. But what people overlook is that guards are, to a large extent, as much victims of the system as the inmates are. Um, I, I interviewed one guy who runs uh, an alliance of um, CO unions who said he'd never been, he's been like 40 years, 30, 40 years in corrections. He said he'd never met a corrections officer who woke up in the morning and said, boy, I can't wait to get to work today. It's, you know, they're in the this kind of caste system of law enforcement. Mm. They're regarded as near the bottom. You know, they're, they're not exactly up there with the air force. Right. Um, and they work in di really difficult conditions. They've, in some cases, they contribute to the difficulty of the conditions because they're, they're trained not, not to be therapists or social workers. They're trained to be guards, even though they pr prefer as a group to be referred to as corrections officers. And I try to honor that just out of courtesy. But what they're trained to do is crowd control and self-defense. So... I don't know yeah, if that my question or not. no, yeah, that absolutely answered my question. And my experience was, as I mentioned before, it was very eye-opening learning all about it. But I learned all about the the guards as well. And uh, you you may or may not be familiar with this. And, and if I'm being redundant, please forgive me. I just for emphasis and for anyone listening that might not know, but Nebraska is the second most overcrowded prison population in, in the country at a time for, for a short amount of time, it overtook the number one spot. Um, but as dropped back down to number two, we have a severe crisis, not just with overcrowding, but understaffing as well. Um, they just, they can't find anybody to work. And when they do, they get in there and they're like, are you, forget this, man, I'm out of here. This is, you're asking way too much for this. So my experience inside, I had, I met some actually really decent COs. I met a couple people who were there who really were all about trying to change people's lives and trying to take that opportunity to say, here's how you can help to better yourself. So I, that's a story that I try to tell from this. And I've actually brought on a CEO that oversaw my unit so that I can have him tell his story. He started the, the seven habits 
on the inside course for the, de- the entire Department of Corrections in Nebraska, very devoted to trying to help people get back on their way. So I think it's I can't imagine that his interview with you helped his career a lot. Uh, he had been fired by that point, which is why I asked him to come on. And funny enough, he was let go specifically because they were they used him as an example because he was trying to help the the inmates too much. Uh-huh. And they were like, you got to stop talking to them. And he's what are you talking about? I'm trying to help. And they just he was gone. So, yeah, otherwise I wouldn't have I would have put him in that kind of a jeopardy. But it was an interesting story. And I said, come tell me about it. So um, one of the things that I you probably noticed in the book, I, I dwell for a couple of chapters on how they do things in Europe. I was just about to segue there. Yes. In Norway and Germany, we sent a reporter to on a trip to Germany with a bunch of American corrections officials and one of the, there were a, a bunch of eye-opening things about these these visits which led to some interesting experiments on the back when they got back home which we can talk about if you want but one of the things that just blew their minds was the role of the, the treatment and pre- preparation and role of staff if you're going to be a corrections officer in Germany in a German prison you're going to go to school for two years and you're going to study, among other things, human rights law and psychology. Uh, and then you're going to be paid really well. And it's a prestige job. They, they get, you know, it's like getting admitted to an expensive, you know, high quality university. In the U.S., as you know, your, your training consists of weeks, not years. Yeah. And it's likely to focus on crowd control and self, self-defense. Right. Here's how to use the pepper spray. Yeah. Yeah. So what what were some of the things that you saw overseas? I've talked about this, but it's been a very long time. There's been a lot of studies coming out recently talking about some of the facilities over in Europe where they're almost it's almost like a like a college where they really focus on that rehabilitation where they say, okay, you're you're gonna maximize this time. So when you come out you're going to be set for success. Yeah. The philosophy, I have not been to the European prisons. We sent reporters there and I've interviewed uh, a lot of American officials who have been there and had their eyes opened just to, just to, I don't want to overclaim. Of course. Uh, but they start with a different philosophy that, and, and it's pretty, pretty much the same, whether you're in Germany or Norway or Sweden or the Netherlands. And the philosophy starts with, you're, you're being punished for breaking one of society's rules. Your punishment is you're deprived of your freedom. And that's it. All your other rights stay intact. The right to conjugal visits, the right to safety, the right to have a decent diet and health care, the, the right to vote, which is, yeah. is only allowed in a couple of U.S. states prison in the, within the prisons. Yep. So, so that's, that's rule number one is... Um, it's it, your punishment is extends to the fact that you're locked up, but it doesn't extend to how you're treated. And then point number two is the job of the system, the German system or the Norwegian system is to figure out what it was that led you to do the bad things you did and work on them. As long as we've got you here, let's do some anger management, let's do, let's do Alcoholics Anonymous, let's give you an education, let's give you skills. 
And the third principle is what they call the normality principle, which is you're going to be leaving the prison at some point. You shouldn't, it shouldn't be a shock to your system when you leave to discover what's going on out there. You, you should have some tra- the, ex- the responsibilities and the experiences of normalcy while you're inside, meaning simple things like you wake yourself up in the morning and you go to class or you go to work, depending on what you're you're doing. You fix your own food sometimes, you iron your own clothes, your uniforms, um, so that when you get out and you you maintain as much contact as as they can possibly arrange with your family, um, with other outsiders, volunteers, and the other thing is that we talked a little about the, the CEOs. When there's a great YouTube video of the warden of Halden prison in Norway talking to the, the CEOs at Attica. Hmm. And they're all, and they're all but, is, but safety. These guys are killers and violent people. What do we do about them? And he points out that there's a different way to maintain to contain violence. That's if you're engaging with the prisoners on a regular basis, you eat meals with them, you talk to them, you keep, you keep an eye on how their lives are going. You can anticipate when there's a fight that's gonna break out or when somebody's gonna have a crisis, a trauma, uh, a mental breakdown, and you can deal with it you know, in, in real time. And that is a more reliable way of keeping yourself safe than just frisking everybody for shivs twice a day. Yeah. It it's interesting. It's interesting from from this side ha- having gone through it because I see those people who are, you know, branded as the quote unquote the worst of the worst of society, the the dangerous people, the killers, the murderers, the thieves, all the people that are in for a long time. They uh they put on a show for the guards is really what it comes down to when they're around, they puff their chests up and they get mouthy. And there's a very clear separation of us versus them. And then the CEO takes off and it, they're the most intelligent and reasonable human being I've ever, ever met. I've had some of the greatest conversations of my life with those people, but they, it's the way that the system is set up here in America really just feeds into that that separation. You've got the guards over here and you've got the inmates over here and they're the bad guys. But what a waste of human potential. Yeah. That's, that's the thing that my, fir- my first visceral lesson in dealing with p- people who spent time in prison or who were, are in prison, some of whom I'm still in touch with, was just... Imagine if these guys had not spent 20 years of their life in a cage because, you know, with a little education and a little sense of purpose, they could be really contributing to society. That sounds like a sort of, you know, squeaky liberal point of view. But I I don't see how it's conservative to squander the potential of human life. Sure. Uh, I'm I my my views are are for the most part fairly conservative. I definitely don't call myself Republican. I don't call myself Democrat either. But man, when it comes to this topic, I'm definitely very, very liberal. I I'm right there with you having 
met those individuals and myself being one of those individuals, they were the most compassionate, reasonable, intelligent human beings I, I ever met. Some of the people that are in there for life are the ones that got me through my initial first few months, which were the, the worst, mm-hmm. the absolute worst. So what what do you think? And, and this can play into your opinion. If you've got statistics to to back it up or studies, I'd love to hear about them. But what is it, in your opinion, that you think still continues to feed into the system running as it is here in America, despite all of the evidence showing how it doesn't work and how all of these other countries are doing something that seems to be working much better, we still have that tunnel vision and just won't budge. The answer to that is pretty complicated, I think. I mean, the big picture is that the prison system, this is going to be a little oversimplified, but the prison system is like a sewer for all of the problems of society. It's like a big catch basin. Mm. So people who have poor education or no skills or no health care or no housing, all the, all the social problems created by those flow into the prison system. So you can't really, that radic- there's a limit to how much you can change the system when, when the, you have del- a deluge of bad stuff flowing in. Not bad people, just bad attitudes, um, you know, bad experiences, bad traumas. So that's 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 part of it. Um, is why the system stays the way it is. Part of it is politics. It's mm. it's easy to demagogue the issue of crime, which sure. is happening again now. Um, and part of it is money. You know, there we spend what, $80 billion a year on jails and prisons, locking yeah. people up. Um, and some, some, st- some states have, because the courts told them to, or because they decided they wanted to save the money, have cut back on the cost of prison and closed prisons. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. No, you're uh, fine. You're fine. So, and, and on that, on that same line of thinking though, I was hoping you would get into that because that's my opinion is the number one issue is, is the money. What about the for-profit prison system? How did that even, how did that even come about? And again, I'll still allowed to, to operate. Yeah. Well, it started with slavery and then continued with the loop, big loophole in the 13th Amendment, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Which Very is, well. Very well so. For people convicted of crimes. Yep. Uh, which led to, you know, what were plantations, what were slave plantations became convict plantations. Mm-hmm. So there's, all, there's for, it's not a new thing that there's a profit interest in prisons. But then there are, I think the places like CCA began in the 70s or 80s with the idea that they would manage the prison, the whole, but manage the whole prison for you. Yeah. Um, and just pay us the same way that hotels get paid by occupancy. You know, if we keep the cells full, we get more money. Now, private prisons only add up to about 10% of the capacity of the prison capacity and jail capacity of, in this, in this country. But, but private management doesn't tell the whole story. As you well know, there are all kinds of services that public prisons contract out for. 
their healthcare, the transport, telecommunications, meals, uniforms. Those are all made by almost all made by for-profit companies that sell them to the state. So there's a the profit motive is not only been going on for 150 years. Uh, it's it's bigger than it looks on the surface. Sure. And not to mention the the companies that that contract with the state to have the inmates produce a, yeah. a product for them at literally pennies on the dollar and then turn around and sell it at the most massive markup in the in human history. That's correct. So how do you, uh, I always try to end the show as, as constructively as I can and try to put some, something productive on the table, some type of ray of hope or something that somebody can do. So what, what do you think are some things that I or anyone listening can, can do to take action with the, with this subject, say it's, it's someone who has someone who's inside and they're seeing all of these things that we're talking about and they're screaming from the rooftops and they feel like nobody's listening to them. What are some steps that the average person can take to, to try to start to draw some of that awareness? Well, the, mostly the obvious things that you try to do when you when you want to change institutions, you vote, you call your congressman and try to get him or her to vote for good legislation to make things better. You, if you have money to give at Christmas time, you give a little money to the places that the not-for-profits that handle re-entry or education. Uh, you don't pan, you don't elect people who pander to your sort of nastier instincts. Because it's, I mean, let's face it, everybody has, has the experience of thinking this guy should be punished yeah. into his life. And it's human nature to think that. But when politicians pander to that, you get indifferent to cruel treatment of the people. Yeah. And, and I, always, I always try to underscore, this may be obvious, but in, in, it's not a gift that you're giving to somebody who committed a crime, it's an investment in somebody who's going to be your neighbor because 95% of the people incarcerated are going to be free one day. And, you know, do you want to send them home alienated and brutalized and with no skills and stigmatized, or would you like rather have them you know, with a real chance of readjusting to real life? Yeah. I mean, my heroes in the book, I, I some, one of the reviewers described the book as surprisingly optimistic and it's not, I'm not really optimistic. I mean, because, <laughs> because prisons are, are a sewer for all of society's problems and I don't see us solving all of those problems instantly, but I do focus on my sort of heroes who range from corrections officers who went to Germany and tried to adopt some of those practices to teachers who, who run college level classes and in, in prisons to volunteers. Um, I think not because those people are necessarily going to win the war of what, what prisons are like, but because they show the possibility. And I like to hold up at least the hope of some solution. Sure. That's, 
that's my goal too. And my, my standpoint from even starting this show was there's more people that are inside of prisons that come back out into the community and successfully reintegrate. They live a quiet life. They have a job, they have their family and they don't ever go back, but that's not newsworthy. So you don't ever hear about that person. You hear about like being in Nebraska, you hear about um, the, the Mother's Day riot and all of the people that started that and how those people got more convictions on top of that. Or Nico Jenkins from many years ago, who was set out on parole and told the parole board, I'm going to go do it again if you let me out. And sure enough, he did. So, the, But those are the stories that make the news. It's never about the guy who gets back out and goes and works his job and pays his bills and has a good relationship with his wife and kids and has a happy life happily ever after. Well, that's an, a fair indictment of the media's role in all of this. I mean, I do think there are places, and I hope the Marshall Project is one of them, that are part of the solution. But there's still an awful lot of sensational coverage that contributes to the fear and which contributes to harsh policies. Yep. That's our, I, I really take the stance of, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. So that's, that's what I'm doing is focusing on the hope, focusing on those positive stories. So we've got just about little over a minute here. Uh, I want to make sure to give you some time to tell us where we can find the book. Should someone feel so inclined to reach out and contact you if they have questions or comments, how can people reach you? Um, you can get the book anywhere where you can get books, or you can go to the um, Columbia Global Reports website and order through them. But, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all, all of the big booksellers will make it available. Uh, and I am, although I have used social media, I, I mostly don't like it very much because either you spend your life doing social media or you spend your life living yeah. Um, but uh, my, my email address, which I distribute pretty freely, is nykeller at gmail.com. And that's nykeller at gmail.com? Exactly. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for your time. We are winding down. I do appreciate you staying up late with me. As <laughs> this, was, this was a great honor for me. So I, I wish you the best. I hope the book does fantastic. And I hope to have you back at some point in the future. And thank you for listening. As always, I hope you have found value in the show today. Don't forget the website, survivingthesystem.org. On Facebook at facebook.com slash surviving the system. Twitter at STS, the podcast. And of course, fringe.fm. And as always, don't forget, keep your head up. Don't let them get you. It may be easy to look at all the corruption and manipulation in the system and feel hopeless. Here at Surviving the System, we hold to the belief that greatness is born in the midst of extraordinary struggles. You were created with a purpose, with infinite potential, and many have lost sight of that fact. We're here to remind you of who you are. The best revenge is success.